Well, good morning, Los Angeles. Welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Lenny Esposito, and with Harry Edwards and Jacob Daniel, my normal companions, uh, out at this time, I will be hosting the show, and I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you with me on a beautiful August evening. Uh, I'm not alone, though. I did want to uh, let you know that I have one guest in studio with me who we will introduced to you shortly, but I did want you to know that as this is a call-in show, you can call in anytime with your question or comment. We'd love to hear from you. Just dial in 888-995-KKLA. That's 888-995-5552. And this is the show, uh, like we've said, we want to teach believers to think and thinkers to believe at apologetics.com. We're hoping that you will do that with us. As tonight we talk about an interesting report that's just come out from the Centers of Disease Control. Now, you may be tired of hearing about COVID and all of the related issues. I'm Obviously, how can we get away from it? It seems to be part of our life. We're still seeing a lot of shortages in grocery stores, can't go to the movie theaters. But COVID is actually an ancillary part of this program because it has, as part of the Centers for Disease Control has highlighted, it's actually brought to the fore other issues that we're seeing in our society. And one is depression and suicide, specifically among young people, 18 to 24. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is why are the people who are not necessarily at high risk of uh, a significant reaction to the coronavirus reacting in such a depressed state? What's going on in our society? Is this symptomic, symptomatic of uh, the current pandemic, or is there something maybe underneath that we need to look at? And like I said, I didn't want to do this alone, so I brought a friend with me, uh, Tom Thomason, uh, who's a good friend of mine, been a ministry partner for many years. Uh, he's also a licensed marriage and family therapist with uh, Genesis Counseling, CEO of Genesis Counseling. And he specializes in marital restoration, healing family conflicts, and addressing individual issues of anxiety and depression with children, adolescents, and adults. And he's... Uh, the perfect person to be talking about these things. Welcome, Tom. Glad to have you with me. Thanks, Lenny. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Um, now, you've you've heard uh, us talk about the radio show, but this is your first time actually on. First time, yeah. Very, been very excited. Been been praying for uh, what you've been doing here on the radio for quite some time. Yes. So excited to join you tonight. Well, I'm glad, again, I'm glad that you're here as well. And uh, I think it's an important uh, topic that we're talking about. The reason why I'm bringing this up now is because uh, this report from the Centers of Disease Control just came out. It was dated August 14th, 2020, just published. And you can go to the CDC website and download it yourself. It's a part of the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. So the Centers for Disease Control puts out a report on uh, basically the state of uh, deaths and things of that nature in the country. And this was a, was a really interesting, eye-opening piece. Uh, specifically, young people ages 18 to 24 showed a spe- specific uptick in uh, things like how they seriously considered suicide. And I'm just going to read from the report a little bit so that you get a flavor for it. 
It says elevated, and I'm quoting now, elevated levels of adverse mental health conditions, substance use, and suicidal ideation were reported by adults in the United States in June of 2020. So this is very recent. The prevalence of symptoms of anxiety disorder was approximately three times those reported in the second quarter of 2019. So comparing to 2019 versus 2020, 2020 of June showed 25.5% versus 8.1% in 2019. That's pretty Mm. significant. Uh, A prevalence of depressive disorder was approximately four times that reported in the second quarter of 2019, 24.3 versus 6.5%. And they go on to say there may be some methodological differences and potential unknown biases, but approximately one quarter of the respondents reported symptoms of uh, some kind of stress-related disorder related to the pandemic. And approximately one in 10 reported that they started or increased substance use because of COVID-19. Suicidal ideation, and this was the piece that caught my eye the most, was also elevated. Approximately twice as many respondents reported serious considerations of suicide in the previous 30 days than did adults in the United States in 2018. And what's key in that was specifically the 18 to 24 subgroup. It was up dramatically to 25%, 25 25.5%. Oh, seriously considered suicide. One in four kids between 18 to 24 we're thinking about suicide seriously in the last 30 days. That, to me, is a staggering number. Yeah. What's your response to, to this, Tom? What's your reaction? Well, I think the reality is just that the kind of fascinating overall picture, the, the context of where that population has been probably for the last five, five or so years uh, really has been pretty sheltered has been pretty well protected. Um, what I found fascinating that, that I've been seeing in my own private practice is that I was seeing more older folks and, uh, and you know, marriages and so forth. But what's happened more recently as I've gotten younger and younger folks coming in, including young children coming in. So I think we're seeing a dynamic of not only the younger kids being impacted by this, but also those young families. And so when they see their kids start struggling with things, they don't quite know what to do with that either. So uh, what, what was fascinating to me when COVID first came out, I was feeling like, okay, we're going to get a, a large influx of people coming in right away. And that's kind of the stuff that people were talking about. But what really happened instead is it was almost like people were thinking, hey, we're on vacation. Hey, this is kind of mm. cool. We're, we're getting to do things. And I, I was hearing uh, families say, you know, I've been able to have some great time with my kids. I've been hearing them ask me questions. You know, Dad, how can I be like you one day? You know, things like oh, wow. this. And so they were really saying, things are going really good. Things are going really good. That happened for about three weeks. And then things started to change. And it was more with the older population that it started to change. I think we even saw this and heard about it in society as well. And then it was like, well, only the really old people are getting sick. And so everybody was still kind of having a lot of freedoms and, hey, we're living this up. Hey, I'm getting more money on welfare than I was in any other capacity. But as things have gone longer and longer, that's changed for them. And this is freaking them out. And so we're starting to see more of the of the fallout 
of this prolonged isolationism that people are experiencing. I see. So. I see. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so why then? Uh, and again, I, I'm highlighting the report. Why we're seeing all adults that's been at an increase. Yes, I think that's completely understandable. But we are seeing a dramatic increase in specifically an age group that has normally been identified or they, they, they tend to self-identify as more or less invulnerable, right? right? The 18 to 24-year-old male, for example, right. he's, he's the most, I've heard someone say he's the most, the most powerful force in the world as an 18-year-old man mm. because he's young and strong. His, his body is at its peak physical capacity mm-hmm. during those years. Right. Mentally, he tends to believe that he's nearly invulnerable, right? This is why you have all of those movies and, and the dares and the guys, you know, riding tricycles off the roofs of their houses right. into the pools and all the things that you, you know you shouldn't ever do. But, right. but they think that you, you basically have this assumption that you're indestructible. That seems to be part of that modern... Mm-hmm. Exit from adolescence, if you will. Right. Uh, however, this age group now is specifically susceptible to things of of fear and depression mm-hmm. and suicidal thoughts. Now, it's not. I don't know that this is. Uh, there's been a, a, a kind of a gradual upswing in this before, mm-hmm. but why is this group? And this is one of the things that I started asking. Why is this group, especially? so vulnerable to being taken and, and concerned to the point of thinking about suicide with this issue. Yeah. Well, one context would be, you know, even as you're describing that, kind of what happens in that particular population, the interesting thing about brain development is that in terms of brain development, the very last part, because our brains are developing from the time we're born all the way up through what science has more recently discovered up through age 25. And then things start to plateau out and just kind of refine and, and, and prune away and all the rest. But the brain development continues up through age 25. And the very last thing to develop is the prefrontal cortex, the, the, basically where your forehead is. That prefrontal cortex is the last thing to develop. And it develops between 18 to 25. And that is responsible for judgment. So interesting point, at a time at which we now identify them as adults, legally responsible for all their choices and decisions, they're at they're still developing, even having good judgment at that point. One of the reasons, again, why young military folks, right, are ideal for the military, because their commander says, hey, take that hill, they're going to go, yes, sir, we could do that, sir, right? But when they're about 30 or so, you say, hey, take that hill. Well, that hill looks a little high, and <laughs> I'm not sure what's on the other side, right? You know, it's because of some of that. Here's the reality. See, when we have wars, when we have World War situations, many of those young people go into that thinking that they can do everything possible, and they are confronted with the fact that life is short, that there's brutal stuff that's mm. happening out there. What's happening right now is the war's been brought home to them. See, with this COVID thing, they're now facing a a global pandemic that is constantly in front of their eyes 24-7, and they're actually experiencing the effects of that now because of this prolonged 
impact and they're starting to ask questions and starting to worry and starting to doubt and some are either starting to get sick or media is promoting the fact that they are whichever that is the point is that that population is now being confronted with this and they're having to say what does this mean for me and so it starts to freak them out it starts to scare them because it's beyond literally beyond their control so so one of the things that you're saying then is that um what we are seeing now is a, a generation who've not had to confront their mortality or their um vulnerabilities yeah in the past and they're doing so now and and it's not just covid like i said we've seen this this trend has been going up yeah um in prior in in the last few years it's not this it just covid kind of accentuated it and and accelerated it to that degree uh what i find fascinating though is if you look at the big picture we're actually living in the most prosperous time mm-hmm. on earth right we have uh poverty rates are down uh uh, a person living in uh, the most wealthy European city in 1820 was probably, the average individual was probably not guaranteed any more than maybe one meal a day. Mm. Um, the mortality rates are, are lower than ever before, where the average age span was 35 to 37, you know, back 200 years ago. Uh, you see... Um, Household income has risen even between 1970 and today, where you're looking at $50,000 versus $74,000 in inflation-adjusted numbers. And uh, 2.5% of the population is undernourished, and that's about all. Anyway, stat after stat, what we're seeing is, by any objective standard, of a much safer society. But yet, we have an opposite thing happening and i think there's there's a couple of dynamics that are going on here and i'd I'd love to talk about them one is of course and you mentioned that kids are now very uh sensitive and they're starting to worry it's interesting that one of the things that technology has done was force people to become part of a conversation that they may not have otherwise been part of where kids wouldn't necessarily pour over a newspaper in elementary school, they're on their phones or yeah. their tablets every day for hours, and they can't miss the sensationalist headlines, the clickbait mm-hmm. on the on the crisis. And of course, everything online has to be bigger yeah. and more worrisome. And if they're not going to discern that, they're just going to read it and they're going to ask the question. So I think that's one aspect of why you're seeing more kids kind of getting sucked into the concern. Yeah. But beyond that, and it's it's the same thing with parents, right? We used to go out and play, my parents mm-hmm. go out and play in the field and come mm-hmm. home before the lights come on at dinner. Nowadays, if you let a kid go out and play in the field without watching him, they'll mm-hmm. turn you in as right. being an, right. why? It's not because that there's more child, uh, you know, snatching going on. It's that you read about it online and you think that it's more prevalent than it is. It's actually yeah. down. A greater awareness for sure. Right, yeah. right. But beyond that, the other half of this is that our society has kind of switched from parents as those individuals whose primary responsibility is to shape adults capable of self-sustenance, mm-hmm. self-sustaining, mm-hmm to parents who want to make 
the best life possible for their kids. And there's a big difference between teaching kids to be self-sufficient and removing all difficulties, removing all discomforts from kids. Mm -hmm. We have become so affluent Mm -hmm. that our children are unfamiliar with the struggle. And if you, you know, part of learning anything, I think, is doing it over and over again. You get better at it, right? How do you ride a bicycle? Well, you're going to fall down. That's kind of, how do you ice skate? You're going to fall down, but you get up again. And part of learning is learning how to fall. As a matter of fact, my sons uh, played hockey mm-hmm. and they taught them how to fall because you're going to get hit. You're going to fall right. in hockey. The important thing is to know how to fall so you don't break something and then how to get back up again fast. If we don't allow our children to fail, mm-hmm. we don't teach them how to recover. And I wonder if, that's part of our problem that we've never taught our kids how to fail so that when something where we can't extract them from the danger comes along, they don't know how to recover or if recovery is even possible. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of one of my concerns. Uh, the, and then there's this under, other under, underlying assumption that life is always should be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used the idea that, you know, it's a tragedy if, if, and it is. Don't don't get me wrong. If if a, if a child is sick, uh, or dies, we see that as an abnormality. Now, mm-hmm. that is an um, in the history of humanity, that is an abrogation. Mm-hmm. Most of the time throughout the history of humanity, people understood that suffering and death was was the main part of life. The good moments were the exception to the rule, and we've gotten so. Um, wealthy and comfortable that we've actually flipped that. And so what do you see and what do you, what do you think on these issues? Well, I agree with it 100%. I, I think that, you know, whereas, say, our parents' generation were dealing with various wars and, and even as children had experienced like World War II or yeah. so forth, that they were coming at things with a perspective of tremendous suffering. Uh, tremendous loss, uh, the Great Depression, and so forth. You know, w- we had a uh, quote-unquote Great Depression of of 2008 when the housing market yeah. crashed, but even with that, there was still the government steps in, we have these different recourses and resources, and I don't know that we experienced the equivalent of what they had gone through. And so I think not only our generation, yours and mine, our generation was then trying to provide everything for our kids because our life was good and we could provide things. Not saying that there aren't other people who had struggles out there. Please don't don't take mm. it that way. But for a greater majority of folks, there was a lot of provision, a lot of protection, a lot of things that they kind of got. You know, I, I remember talking to young families when I worked with Riverside uh, Department of Mental Health. And it was a foreign thought to parents to think that that the law didn't require them to have to give their kids a Nintendo or a PlayStation. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like that, that that would be committing child abuse somehow. It's like that's not what the law requires. Yeah. But that was the mentality. And I think we carry that over because we're we're trying to provide a better life for our kids. And so we do that, and by doing that, we protect them more so from any of that struggle or suffering that you're talking about. And it is through that struggle or suffering, even as we know, that we become more identified with Christ. It yes. is that privilege 
to actually go through the suffering that really conforms us more to the image of God and understanding because we got we have a great high priest who understands everything that we have been through because he's gone through that so that aspect of suffering we have probably overly protected i know the term helicopter parenting and yeah. all the rest because we've done that our kids haven't had to go through as much. I, I use this in a parenting seminar that I do. There's a cartoon, kind of a comparison of 1960s, and then a cartoon of the of the uh, 2010, right? And it's got on the one hand, it's got um, the teacher and the parents pointing at the child. You know, why is this occurring? And they're looking at the grades. Why is this occurring? And they're pointing at the child. And then the comparison cartoon of 2010 has the parents and the student pointing at the teacher with the report card. Why is this happening? You know, they're putting the blame on the teacher, for goodness sake. There's a whole different mind shift that has happened that we're overly protective of our kids. And because of that, they don't experience that suffering. And then they don't, as you're saying, 100% 100% accurately, don't know really how to recover, they become so overwhelmed and don't know what to do yeah. with that. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that uh, these thoughts are intriguing you. Again, uh, we have phone lines open. We'd love to hear from you. Just call in uh, 888-995-5552 with your question or comment and uh, help us in this discussion. Uh, let me ask a, another question because we haven't talked about this yet, and I'm, I'm curious about this. Uh, where does the spiritual aspect of all of this fit in? Uh, you brought up the idea of suffering and the Bible. Of course, uh, James tells us, right? Consider it all joys, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is one of the reasons. Peter tells us that your you know, perseverance will mm-hmm. produce these fruits and, and, and uh, self-righteousness, and they're all interlocked, all of the um, spiritual fruits really uh, rely one upon another so that they all flourish together. Uh, But we're also living in a society that's becoming more and more secular. Mm -hmm. And and perhaps it's as much a shift towards, uh, even if we are Christians, and in the church we tend to look for secular solutions or scientific solutions— Uh, do we, you know, uh, gee, our, our kid's acting up in school, let's let's get him on Ritalin. Or, uh, you know, it's just put him on a drug, right? right. We, we don't turn to God. We don't, you know, turn, and, and of course, there's the, also the great falling away where you're seeing a lot of kids who are not engaging in the beliefs of their parents. How much does this add to the um, depression, the despair? Because in ancient days— People in a supernatural mm-hmm. viewpoint would know that, well, I pray to God. That's, that's my recourse because he can get me out of this. But we don't think like that anymore. So how do you see right. that playing in? Well, I, I think that there's a, a large context, again, to the fact that because we're so protective of our kids, because they're not necessarily experiencing some of the same sufferings that earlier generations went through, they're relying upon either us as their parents, and when their parents disappoint them or mm-hmm. fall short, then it's like, see, you know, they don't know, we know better, and that brings on to this next generation as, you know, we're against the man, like the man being government or the man being our parents or whatever. Um, that that's some of the social aspect of it. But I think that the, the spiritual aspect of it is, is, again, kind of the same thing, that 
that church overall has become more of an entertainment than it has really been a process of growth, uh-huh. a process of growth and maturity. And so when we encounter struggles and trials and difficulties, it's not necessarily that we're bringing that younger generation up to, to really pour out their hearts to the Lord and ask God. I remember a story my um, uh, sister-in-law actually shared. One of the times where she became really connected with God was when she lost, and this is something that we wouldn't even understand about now, which has to do with a skate key, right? Having keys to be able to operate your skates to unlock them, right? Oh, yeah. And she lost her skate key as a little girl, and she loves skating. And so she talked to her mom about it, and they sat down and they prayed, and she was able to find her skate key as a little girl, and she was just so amazed that God cared about her skate key, right? Now, that's suffering on a smaller scale, of course, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I I don't know that I'm hearing generationally that we're really doing that because we're finding simpler solutions, quote-unquote. And it's like I love the story that you have shared with us at, at church before about, you know, with the and, and we got to hear from the actual source, hear, hear from Craig Hazen regarding this story about his uh, missionary friend from Guyana, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly. Uganda, I believe. Uganda, okay. Right? And that whole point of, you know, that this guy over in Uganda is seeing all these amazing, miraculous things. Yeah. And he's seeing those over there as he's talk, talking to Craig Hazen over here in the United States saying, why are you guys seeing that? We're not seeing the same kind of things. He says, well, it's because of 911, right? Yeah. It's that context that we have a quick solution. Hey, it's wonderful that we have that solution, but then that starts to replace God. Yes, And exactly. they over there are, are constantly bringing things like even the death of a child before the Lord and praying and seeing people come back to life. I mean, we don't see right. that in, at least from our perspective. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. Well, we have a couple of phone calls uh, waiting in the wings, but we're going to take a quick break and uh, hold right in there. We'll get right back to you. This is apologetics.com radio. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about Him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. 
It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Good morning. Welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show where we're discussing Christianity, COVID, and the crisis of despair in our youth today. And I have with me my good friend and partner, Tom Thomason. Um, Before we get back to our discussion, we've got a few phone calls I'd like to take. First of all, I have Greg in Costa Mesa, and let me bring you online. Greg, you are live. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah. Um, I'm 56 years old. And you guys bum me out a little bit oh. because apparently I missed my opportunity to ride tricycles off rooftops. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you you didn't miss the opportunity, but you may not necessarily want to take it as as vigorously yeah. as you would have. <laughs> well, I want I wanted to make a couple of comments. Uh, one being about that kind of a thing. Um, I was in the military a little bit, and I know a lot of older soldiers. I know a lot of. I, I was an emergency responder. I know some older emergency responders, okay? Um, and when they were, quote-unquote, young and dumb, uh, I think that, for instance, if you take the Congressional Medal of Honor winners, or I should just say the Medal of Honor winners, exactly, those people had a higher sense, a higher development of altruism and, and love for their fellow man, I think, and and that's what compelled them to do what they did. That's what compels you know the firefighter doesn't go in. Yeah, some do, right. but normally the firefighter goes in to um, to get someone out to 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 help someone to save someone. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's more it's more of a feeling of responsibility than opportunity to have an adrenaline high. Right, hmm. I agree with in you. In my opinion, now another thing. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, that wasn't too, too long ago, I remember day camps, YMCA day camps, mm. where 20 of us with counselors would be able to get into a covered stake bed truck mm. 
drive all over to different locales in Southern California in that covered stake bed truck on the freeways and everything oh, else mm-hmm. and have the grandest time of any childhood, you know, any, any kid could ask for. That is completely impossible today because of how litigious our mm-hmm. society has become, yes. which I think is, has helped destroy um, a lot of which, what you're talking about, uh, childhood. Mm-hmm. Since children can't experience things like that, they don't know things really outside of themselves. Yeah. They take a look at their... I, I'm so angry with cell phones and, and, yeah. and personal devices. We now, because of cell phones and PDAs and stuff like that, We've got a four-second, on average, um, attention span. Yeah. Hmm. I, e- even I, back when I was 10, 12 years old, I remember concentrating on things, even things I didn't necessarily like, for a half hour at a time. Mm-hmm. Yes. You yeah. cannot process information and help but be um, dismayed and overwhelmed and everything else. If you don't have the time to deal with it, and we are not trained to deal with it anymore. Well, I appreciate your your comments, Greg. I agree with you. I think uh, also pointing to your, you know, anecdote about the steak bed truck, I think it's not, uh, we are a litigious society, but there's, we're also a very risk averse society. Mm -hmm. We we are falling into the trap of what uh, is called safetyism, where it's, it's safety above all and, uh, if it, as I tried to kind of articulate at the beginning, if there is any risk at all, oh my gosh, we have to eliminate that. And and again, that concerns me because it, it takes away the opportunity of struggle. It takes away the opportunity to learn uh, how to fail well and how to recover from that. But I but I, I completely agree with you, and I think the altruism point is a valid one. Thank you so much for your comments. Yeah. Okay. Okay, next I'm going to uh, Elaine, who's uh, our next caller, and she'd like to contribute. Hi, Elaine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I just wanted to briefly refer to Revelation chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, Because I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's a contrast in having the worldly goods and the opposite side. John wrote the book of Revelation, and then he said also in, in the book of John, chapter 14, he tells us that, you know, that if you, if, if you believe in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit teach you that he, that is, in Christ, will give you peace. And I think the yeah. two contrasts are, are exact. Exactly the same is that you don't have Christ, you don't have peace. I see. You so, so Christ, you're, you you're now you're pointing to the you're pointing to the passage where uh, the angel is speaking to the church of Laodicea. Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, yeah. which is the right. lukewarm church. That's the church that is neither hot nor cold, and right. and he quotes them as saying, "I am rich, and I have become rich, and I have need of nothing." And you're and you're saying that that's more or less our society in which we're finding ourselves now. That's where we. That's what I believe now. Okay. Because we're all seeking the same thing, and that's yeah. But John said in, in the book of John, in chapter 14, verse 27, he said that the Lord will give you peace. Yes. Not as the world gives. 
but that's, I think it. Amen. That's so right. Both places there. There's a contrast between what's spiritual and what's what's natural, what's expected of the world. And I think so many people have withdrawn from those two concepts that they don't realize what they need to do to control the fear that they walk around with. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah, Jesus said, you know, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome right. the world. Right. And we, we miss right. that point. And I think, again, that kind of argues to um, why our belief, our faith it should be central, even in these days, even in the—we need to think— about our reactions through our faith. And I think that's a, that's a key point. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your call, uh, Elaine. Okay. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Okay, next we have Darnell, who has a, a comment for us. Hey, guys. Uh, I just have two points I'd like to make. Um, one, one point is that I think suffering is relative uh, to the individual. What may be painful and dreadful to one person may not be painful and dreadful to, to another. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and the second point I have is that I think that, um, you know, the knowledge, whenever we gain a knowledge that we're going to die one day, um, we don't know when, we don't know how, I think that produces like a death anxiety. Mm. And I think that's universal across generations. I mean, you know, just to know that we're going to lose whatever we have on this planet whatever we have on this earth, it's temporal, mm-hmm. and yet we don't know when, we don't know how. That That is suffering in and of itself, and that produces anxiety that is common to all mankind. So I think regardless of the generation you're born into, you experience that death anxiety. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, in in terms of what you're talking about regarding suffering being individual, yes, absolutely, because everybody has different levels of uh, of abilities to process or experience in processing. So yeah, I 100% agree with what you're saying there. In the context of the knowledge of of death, uh, early on. Yeah, so um, oftentimes kids might experience that death either from a bug, right, that's get squashed in front of them as they're younger or whatnot. And that's kind of the first experiences. I mean, we can even trace it back earlier to body training as well, that there's kind of deaths or sacrifices or losses that happen early on in life. I think what what's as we were talking here that there's a context there's been so much protection regarding all of this that we you know we don't experience what generations before us experience we're seeing death right before us we're yeah. seeing a, an adult pass away in our home those kind of experiences that we we shelter so much from that and because of that um, our younger generations don't experience that same sense of death and understanding about death. And because of that, when something then becomes so traumatic or dramatic for them, it, it shocks them. And that then creates that anxiety that you're referencing, where it becomes that death anxiety, because I don't, nobody's sitting here talking to me about what this means and how does this translate to me? Oh, that's just a bug. Don't worry about it, right? But no, they're seeing themselves as the equivalent of that. I mean, that was their buddy. That was their partner, right? And then you got the pets who pass away and same kind of thing. So some of the things that we do to 
either help kids understand and comprehend that which helps to create, as I think Elaine was talking and Lenny was referencing, that, that Jesus Christ can provide that comfort along the way when we have an overall picture about life and death and eternity, then we have a great hope. It's not a hope that disappoints. It's, it's not a hope that doesn't cause us not to cry. Jesus himself did. But there's a context of understanding that that I think we've sheltered our kids yeah. from. That's and that's uh, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul uh, really faced that, and you know he came away as as your faith deepens, you can mm. come away with a, a more eternal perspective to live as Christ, to die as gain, yeah. and so that kind of anxiety. And again, the the quote that I referenced earlier, you know, I have overcome the world. It is, uh, don't fear the man who can take your mm-hmm. body, fear the God who can take your soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those kinds of concepts are, are again, we're, they're lost in our idea. We're in a home, say, a hundred years ago, where we didn't have hospice. Mm-hmm. You know, grandma and grandpa normally lived with the family in a large house, and children experienced maybe their grandparents dying. In, in John Adams' day, uh, he lost two of his children, uh, you know, and that was normal. They, re- they had five or seven kids because usually not all five or seven are going to make it to adulthood. That's, right. That was just the way life was back then. But there was a, a pedagogy, a, a teaching mm. that would happen to reference Christ, to know that there's an ultimate hope, you will see them again. All of that stuff was part of the formation of the individual. And I, we don't, again, because as you said, Tom, we just don't see that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think, I think that all of those things wrap into uh, these concepts. Well, thank you so much, Darnell. I appreciate your call and uh, hope you keep listening. Thank you. Okay. So, wow, we, we've covered a lot mm-hmm. and, uh, there's a couple of points that I want to, I don't want to just talk about the problem. I want to mm-hmm. talk about possible solutions as well. So what should the, what should we be doing individually? How do we engage these people who are feeling suicidal or just depressed or maybe just anxious? You know, how should we be talking to young people today? What's, what's our way to help them understand an eternal perspective, to help them how to fail well? How do we how do we pick up the pieces in this? Are they just are we just lost, or is there a way to help guide them through these kinds of crises? I, um, I'm going to reference a number of different points that I had made in, in an article regarding how parents can work with their kids, okay. specifically going through kind of the COVID circumstance. Um, and this is actually there's a, a great resource from the National Association of School Psychologists um, that put out an excellent article early on in this whole process. They were talking about helping your family cope uh, during the coronavirus virus chaos. O- overall, of course, stay calm, listen, and offer reassurance. And, and of course, as parents, we would likely do that. But being a role model for our kids as to um, 
you know, we have reactions too. sharing that with them, sharing, you know, identifying honest. Yes. Letting them know, hey, we're struggling with these things, too. We we know that we're instructed right in Deuteronomy six. These words I'm giving you today that should be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So it's it's an important process that we're incorporating this in our whole aspect of being and how we're engaging with our kids. Um, again, being calm, yes, but being honest with them through that process, being aware about how we do talk about that the COVID-19 because of the media input, which is just overwhelming. Yeah, and exactly. it's pretty much all negative. Now, there's a reality. Again, we're talking about the reality of death, the reality of disease, the reality of a worldwide pandemic, things that to us just seem so overwhelming we can't do anything about, but we serve a God who can, mm. right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. You know, that's a powerful thing. And we can be taking these things before our Lord together with our kids and explaining, look, yes, this is the message that's out there, but there is an answer. There is a solution. There is a hope. Uh, explaining things like social distancing and so forth, that's probably so well known at this point, but early on that wasn't. But explaining it, yes, there are some things that their masks can help us with in protecting, but there's some things that they can't. And so identifying that there's kind of a reality to life as well. We can do all these quote-unquote protective things, mm -hmm. but that doesn't guarantee an outcome. We need to be considerate of others because we're trying to help others. Does the reverse hold true as well, though, uh, in the sense that, for example— when we get in the car, yeah, we put on our seatbelts. Yeah. But there's always a risk that we're going to get hit. But we get in the car anyway. Right. And one of the things that concerns me is we seem to see the risk always played to one end that, oh, you don't want to get it, you don't want to get it, here's how to get it. And right. But we don't say, well, you know what? But the risk is not necessarily, so if you're walking outside on a bright, sunny day, you know, the, the fact that you even pass in a, a stranger who's unmasked, the risk is significantly lower right. than if you're in a confined space for two hours with a group of 100 strangers who've touched another 100 strangers. There, that's, those are far different risk factors. And maybe how can we communicate to our kids? Well, you know, everything in life has certain risk assessments. Value. There's never anything at zero. There's never anything at 100%. But you have to live your life. You can't. Mm -hmm. You can't sit in fear. And we. I never hear that message. Right. Yeah. When I think is because we so often err on that side of protecting them, protecting them, protecting them. I think there's a reality as well, and it's and it's good for them to have you talk with them through that reality as their parents. Yeah. Right. Because then they can understand. Well, the, you know my mom and dad are saying this and they don't seem to be freaked out. Everybody on the media seems to be freaked out. But my mom and dad seem to be okay. I, I think I can be okay with this too. So again, it's about modeling. It's about communicating. It's about walking them through some of the understandings. And then it's about giving them resources as well. Things that there are some things they can do 
uh, about. One great resource, actually, as a therapist, one of my six-year-old clients brought this to my attention because when I'm working with folks who are dealing with anxiety and depression, those go hand in hand. When I'm dealing with people with severe anxiety, one of the there's five different techniques that I will te- teach them to help them be able to manage their anxiety, and these are God-given tools and resources. One is simple, which probably most folks know but don't necessarily know how to do it, and that is just to deep breathe, right? To take a deep breath in through your nose, hold it, and then let it out through your mouth. As you're doing that, you're having good oxygen flow. Your biofeedback is happening. Your body is telling your brain, I'm actually calm, as opposed to when you're anxious and you're breathing, and you're talking really fast, and you're taking a quick, quick breath as you're going along, right? That just increases the anxiety. So a very simple thing is breathing. And there's a great book out called Breathe Like a Bear. It's an excellent kid's book, and it identifies multiple different things that kids could actually understand of ways in which that they can help to calm themselves in situations. Many times our kids don't even learn to self-soothe because we're right there to, to pick them up. They're crying. Oh, don't let them cry. We don't want them to suffer. We don't want them to struggle, right? Part of that is learning how they can be able to manage some of those things. So there's another simple example. You know, uh, my my wife will tell me that uh, all that rapid uh, breathing and, and fast talk is my normal state of being, <laughs> but that uh, it's actually causing anxiety in other people, yeah, not yeah. me. But that's that's an aside. How, how true, how true. <laughs> Chrissy, you're right. <laughs> uh, well, there, there's other things that we can do to help build some of that security in for our kids. Again, establishing routines. Kids need to see routines, right? Knowing that we have that. Identifying projects, the things that you can do to help others. Because then again, just as they're feeling anxious about things, there's things that you can do to help others to feel less anxious. So writing a, writing notes to people, like we don't do that anymore. No, Mailing don't. cards to them and so forth. Appreciate that that uh, our da- daughter and son-in-law do this with our grandsons, and they'll send us cards from time to time. But things that you can do, even as simple as hugs and touches, because we're not getting that mm. even now. Now we're looking at screens instead, and, and, yeah. and, and again, especially the 18 to 24 crowd, right. they, you grow up with a phone, Yeah. And you and you grew up with social media, and you assume that those are real relationships, right. and right. and they're missing essential aspects of what relationship is. And one of the things that I think uh, social media very clearly misses is the fact of something. He says he's okay, but there's just something that's not okay with him. You can't mm-hmm. pick that up via social media. Right. You know, you can you can pick that up when you see a person in person mm-hmm. when when you even when you're looking at him across the room seeing him at church it's like now i know you're saying you're okay but your body language is giving it away you can hide all of that right. and, and be what i call pinterest perfect online mm-hmm. right uh, you don't see all the mess outside the frame it's just what you ever want anyone else to see so real relationship needs that kind of additional time right but this leads me to the other question what do we do as a church Mm -hmm. because uh, obviously we're called to the church as well so maybe it's not our own kids uh but as a church we're seeing a a a situation that's necessary to to answer how can the church respond in some meaningful way here um what does it make you know how can should we be having 
parent training classes to, yeah. to teach some of these, uh, you know, uh, procedures and, and, and uh, tools for parents to, to teach their kids. Maybe the church should do that. Or what, what does counseling look like? Sure. Um, and, and does your church, there, is there a difference between church counseling and professional counseling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's some great things that the church can do. And in fact, I know of a church down in the Murrieta area, uh, their uh, Cornerstone is is doing a great thing in that they're um, they've got a, a blog that they're doing uh, on, I believe it's a monthly basis, and they're tackling different mental health issues, especially during this time of this whole COVID thing. Have inviting different mental health professionals to come speak with them wow. and two of their pastors, and they're just talking about various subjects, just like we are tonight. They're doing that specifically to reach out to their community, just to minister to them in that way and help answer some of those questions. Under normal circumstances, people wouldn't be getting that information, especially from the church. So that's a a tremendous outreach that they're doing. Uh, Another thing that other churches do, uh, again, is, is connected with Genesis Counseling. We have three different clinics, one in San Bernardino, one in Victorville, one in Ridgecrest, and then I have my own private practice in Riverside. But in my private practice, as well as in Genesis, we have about a relationship with 40 different churches in the Inland Empire who are connected with our counseling center, and they will send people from their own church, and they'll help fund some of the counseling expense, especially nowadays in this context, mm. when it becomes so hard for folks who have lost jobs or, or had a reduction in salary. The church comes along and helps them. Uh, a buddy of mine, a, a pastor over at Centerpoint, had shared with me that at one time, as Pastor Dane uh, Ocker, he had said at one point as a church, they tried to hire their own therapist to, to do the ministry within their church and so forth. And they found that the, that the process of doing that, the cost of doing that was so prohibitive, whereas if they went ahead and wrote a voucher to a clinic that was already providing this service, it was much more cost-effective, and they were able to be more effective actually in the ministry that they were providing. So partnering as a church, partnering with other ministries that are doing things like that is an excellent way to go to provide the resource that your church family needs. Okay, that's great. Well, before we close up, just a a couple more things that I think are important. What should we do? What should you do if you know someone who may be thinking about suicide, who's mentioned it to you? Someone maybe that you see hasn't mentioned suicide, but you can tell it's very depressed. Or perhaps it's you yourself that are uh, having despondent thoughts, uh, don't know where to turn. What are the resources? What are the next steps that you should take if you see someone in a crisis situation like that? So there's a number of different resources that you can utilize. Uh, One is the National Suicide Prevention Line. That phone number is 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. There's also, interestingly enough, a text place that you can contact for a crisis as well. And the number is 741-741, and you text either the word start or the word home to that, and you actually get a crisis responder on the other line. Um, you can contact our office as well at Genesis. Uh, that number is one eight one. Excuse me, one nine zero nine eight nine zero two two nine nine. 
and we can connect you up, whether it's San Bernardino, Victorville, or Ridgecrest, or even in Riverside, with a licensed or a pre-licensed counselor who loves the Lord and shares the Word of God as well as provides excellent psychological help. So the the main piece, though, is to, uh, if you see someone, uh, engage uh, and, and, and see if they're getting help, and if they're not getting help, um, continue to, to ask them to get help, uh, things like that. You know, one of the things I would share along that line is the context of understanding. Christ actually gives us a perfect example in so many different things. Jesus Christ, believe it or not, experienced that same kind of sense of overwhelming sorrow, right? He took three of his closest buddies with him. He said, I am grieved to the point of death. Come and pray with me. That was a great example. If you're feeling depressed or you know somebody, come alongside of them. Don't let them be alone. People typically do not do harm to themselves when they're with other people. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Tom, for joining me tonight. Uh, we hope this has been informative for you, and we hope that you come back next week. Until then, have a great morning. <laughs>